This is Grow. We're doing a Core Doctrine series. This is the first Sunday of September, which makes it week one of the new topic we'll be looking at. We do three weeks on every topic, week one, two, and three, biblical, historical, practical. And theology means what you think about God. We all have a theology. Lost people, atheists, everybody has theology. Theology is what you believe about God. And the question is, is it biblical or you know, man-made. So we're trying to do a, a look, at, look at the Word and try to get a core biblical theology. So this week's, <clears throat> sorry, this month's topic is Article 13 of our Elder Affirmation of Faith, Christ's Commission to Make Disciples of All Nations. And I'll read that in just a moment, but... Uh, let me see if I can get my cursor to obey. Here we go. Um, before I read, join me in prayer. Father, thank you that we're bowing in prayer right now because lots of people obeyed the commission to make disciples of all nations. And we agree with you that you were not finished when you got to us. We are not the end of all your saving purposes. It is not about us. So we pray that through another look at a very familiar biblical theme to many of us, you would take it from our mind to our heart, from our heart to our lips, our feet, our hands, and you would make us faithful followers of Jesus who said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. This affirmation is just one point long. Some of them have like 12.1.2.3. This is just one point long, but it's going to be three slides. So follow along as I read Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations. Our elder affirmation reads, we believe that the commission given by the Lord Jesus to make disciples of all nations is binding on his church to the end of the age. This task is to proclaim the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, baptizing them, teaching them the words and ways of the Lord, and gathering them into churches able, pardon me, able to fulfill their Christian calling among their own people. The ultimate aim of world missions is that God would create by his word worshipers who glorify his name through glad-hearted faith and obedience. Finally, missions exists because worship doesn't. When the time of ingathering is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. You may have heard some of those phrases if you're familiar with uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. The opening sentence of that book is, missions exist because worship doesn't. Piper didn't write this affirmation. Tom Steller was the primary author on a three-month sabbatical. One year, he just wanted to write his own personal statement of faith. Uh, after a sabbatical, he talked to some friends about it. Those friends said, hey, we would like to look at that too. And uh, long story short, the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church looked at it. They massaged it. 
made it more robust, clarified some phraseology, eventually adopted it. That church started an uh, effort to plant new churches called Treasuring Christ Together. Uh, we are one of those church plants. That network has adopted that statement of faith, so it's no longer the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith only. It's also the Treasuring Christ Together Church Planting Network Elder Affirmation of Faith, and it's also Grace Church Memphis's Elder Affirmation of Faith, and that church planting network no longer is centralized in Bethlehem Baptist Church. It got decentralized like eight or nine years ago. The executive director lives in North Carolina. He's preached here twice, Sean Cordell, and uh, there's about 40 churches around the country, a few internationally, that all embrace and have adopted this same Elder Affirmation of Faith. It's built on ancient creeds and confessions. Um, it follows the Apostles and Nicene and Athanasian Creed. It's built on the Westminster and uh, Baptistic 1689, London Baptist Confession, the Abstract of Principles, the Articles of Faith. It's a fresh phraseology of ancient church theology. Five things I want us to look at about Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations. First is the commission. What is it? And many of you know this verbatim. In fact, let's do this. Can anybody, without looking at their Bible, quote the Great Commission from whatever version you've memorized it in? Just loud and clear, off the cuff, ready, fire, aim. Yeah, and keep get, let's, let's do, make it a community project. I don't know if you guys could hear Katie. She nailed it verbatim. One final phrase. Even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Here it is. This passage, now pre preachers, Bible teachers say stuff like I'm about to say a lot. It's an overused phrase to put on the back of every book this is a must read. No, it's not. There are a few that have stood the test of time and most Christians have thought it good to read them. I'm going to say something that I think is good for your soul. This is a must memorize. It's a must. It's a top tier core text of the Christian faith. Not just memorize it, but meditate on it. Pray about it. Ask Christ to make your life align more with it. When he got up from the dead, he called his 11 disciples to himself, and this is what he said. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We've preached on this text a number of times in Grace Church's history. We need to preach on it way more. Um, this is the Great Commission, if you've heard that phrase. That, this is the passage that people are referring to when they say, the Great Commission. It's these three verses, maybe verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. Um, 
it's the marching orders from the king to his church. And the only command in the passage, the only imperative is make disciples. So this is stirring you guys up by way of reminder. There we go. Make disciples right there. That's the only command. Everything else is a participle. It's I-N-G. So this is not go. It's not a command. It's a participle. It's a like an I-N-G. As you are going, do this. That's the command. This is another participle. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this is another participle. Teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the, the commission is a disciple-making commission. And all Christians don't need to add anything to our lives to be obedient to it. Just as you go, wherever you go, wherever you are, whoever God puts around you, those are the people. It's okay to strategically, intentionally build in things to your life to try to be more faithful to the command. And I think one of the inadvertent detriments to Western Christian evangelism has been programatizing it. I'm not opposed to any of it. Let me be really clear. Tuesday night evangelism was the standard fare for all the churches that I was aware of in my formative years. People would meet at the church, get some names, pray, boom, go out. I saw a brother a couple weeks ago uh, who visited me on a Sunday afternoon, the very first Sunday I came to the church in West Memphis where Tracy's dad was a pastor. He and another man came and saw me that afternoon. That's awesome. That's so good. I'm not denigrating any of that. Um, Those things should actually be catalysts to whole life faithfulness, not an excuse not to be faithful in the rest of it, and I don't think anybody would have seen it that way. So among whom are we to make disciples? The answer is all the nations, right there, everywhere. Divide, conquer, Jesus is king, the whole world. That's ponte ta ethne. You may have heard people say that phraseology. It's the, it's the Greek phrase, all the peoples. Jesus isn't referring to like geopolitical entities, the United States, Cameroon, North Korea. It's great for us to think that way. It's the world we live in. But those lines are changing all the time. And the amalgamation of nations, the country of Nigeria is three former countries that amalgamated into one. So we need to think less geopolitical and more peoples, ethne, linguistic groups, cultures, the gospel going to all of them, which means we cannot only stay in the silo of those who are already around. Somebody's got to cross cultures. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And there is no greater missionary than the one who crossed the greatest of all cultures, stepped out of heaven into the sin-torn world and uh, modeled what it's supposed to look like. This This is Christianity 101. Making disciples of all the nations, 
Uh, several things we're going to say about this commission. I'm a little unable to get that to go off of there onto my own screen. I don't know. There we go. Um, the Apostle Paul would say about his own vision of life and ministry, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's Isaiah's phrase. Like, I'm ruined, I'm devastated. Woe, I have to, I have to make this gospel known. That's native to the heart of every Christian. I'm going to say this more in a moment, but this is the primer for now. This is evidently a local church commission. It's not an individual Christian commission. Congratulations, breathe a deep sigh of relief. The responsibility to get the gospel to the whole world does not rest on your shoulders. You are part of the puzzle, but the commission is a local church commission. That can be threefold, presupposed by the stuff it contains in those words, demonstrated by the actual words that Jesus said, and evidenced by what did the people do who heard Jesus say it originally? How did they spend the rest of their life? And it's all local church-centric. For example, baptism in the New Testament, with one rare exception, was in the context somehow connected to a local church. The one rare exception was a missiological decision, the Ethiopian eunuch, not an ecclesiological local church decision. There were no churches in North Africa, so that brother is baptized when he comes to faith through seeing Jesus in the book of Isaiah and hearing the gospel. And guess what happened? A lot of churches started springing up in North Africa. You can read in church history shortly after the eunuch returned home. And so then nobody's getting baptized in a ditch on the side of the road. It's all local church connected in some way. So baptism, local church, connection, New Testament, quite evident pattern. It also presupposes, but I said it's demonstrated through the words in the passage, it takes a pretty long time to teach somebody to observe, that's obey, all that Jesus ever commanded. How long would that take? A lifetime, a long, long time of together relationships. And uh, anyway, there you go. So that's the commission. To whom does it belong? I've already touched this just briefly. It's not you personally or me personally, praise the Lord. It is the local church. We are the stewards of the commission. Look at Romans 15. For I will not presume, this is the Apostle Paul, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So that geographic swath, Jerusalem, all the way as far as Illyricum, is a thousand miles. That's a long swath of geography that also represents millions of souls. Sociologists, anthropologists would say there's multiple millions of people who would have inhabited that land in the first century. How can Paul say this sentence? 
I have fully preached the gospel of Christ there. Done, mission accomplished, time to go somewhere else. Look back at what had happened in Paul's life and ministry by the time he wrote that sentence. What happened? God had allowed him to see the establishment of about a dozen churches. So from here to Anchorage, Alaska, about now, yeah, it's maybe a little more than a thousand miles. Twelve churches. So Paul says, "Time for me to go to Asia. We're done here." I don't think it's only an argument from silence. You can read actual phrases in passages like Acts thirteen, the Corinthian connection to the churches in Jerusalem, like we saw last week in our sermon, Macedonian connections, connection to the churches in Achaia, local churches. Paul believed, I think you can deduce from his words, bore the responsibility to propagate the gospel in their spheres of influence to the ends of the earth. So Paul could say, if there's 12 or so churches in this area, time for me to go somewhere else. The churches had the responsibility to continue to propagate the gospel. So I said the church is presupposed in the Great Commission, but it's also evidenced by how the men who saw and heard Jesus say those words, spent the remainder of their lives obeying it. What did those men do? Well, we know what several of them did because of the New Testament, and we have good reason to conclude what the remainder of them did based on the reliable testimony of church history. Let me give you a few examples. The apostle John was standing there. He heard Jesus say the Great Commission. What did he do with the rest of his life? Well, one thing he did was he pastored the church at Ephesus. Until, of course, he got kicked out of town for preaching Jesus and got exiled to the island of Patmos. What did he do when he got there? He wrote a letter called Revelation to whom? Seven churches. He spent the rest of his life trying to propagate the gospel, establish and strengthen local churches in Christ. What did Peter do? You guessed it. Peter thought of himself absolutely as an apostle. I don't think there are any more of those today. That's another talk for another day. But equally as much as Peter thought of himself as apostolic, he thought of himself as a pastor. When he wrote First and Second Peter, he said, as a fellow elder among you, equal. I'm just a pastor. I'm an ordinary Christian doing, serving God's ordinary means of grace, and he's doing the extraordinary work through the local church. He, he was a pastor. Tradition tells us that Thomas went to India and he died there. What did he do in India? He preached the gospel and established churches. Other apostles were told went west and south into Europe and Africa. Paul, ultimately uh, untimely born, he met with the risen Jesus. Uh, he wasn't one of the 11 uh, who heard the Great Commission, but after he was converted, he went away to the desert of Arabia for over three years. I think he relearned the Old Testament through a Christocentric lens. He met with Jesus in the Bible that he thought he knew so well. What did he do after that? Well, I've already alluded to it, Jerusalem to Illyricum. He spent the rest of his life being sent by a local church, Antioch, to establish new churches where they did not yet exist as the gospel advanced and people were converted. So the stewards of the church are, of, of the commission are churches. What's the scope? What's the goal? Well, Romans 1. 
Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? Bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So going from the end of that backwards, whoop, for Jesus' namesake, him, he's worthy of the worship of whom? All the Gentiles. And just to uh, refresh us on the two ethnicities the New Testament speaks about, Jews and everybody else, Gentiles. So Paul's saying literally all the peoples of the whole world obeying Jesus is what we're trying to do. Who do you write this sentence to? The church at Rome. The scope of the commission is to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and not make converts, but make disciples who replicate disciple-making in their immediate and concentric circles of opportunity. The scope is very clear in Revelation 5 and 7. Revelation 5, who's going to be before the throne? Singing this phrase, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. The whole world, a quick little sermonette here, uh, there's no direct object. Uh, So these translations, though helping us understand, insert a direct object. It says at the, pick up in the middle, and purchase for God with your blood men. It's a direct object from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. In the original, there is none. The point is not laying emphasis on who he purchased, but how. So it's literally, you purchase with your blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The point is the blood, mainly. And therefore, we go to all the peoples. Uh, Revelation 7, same theme. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So the scope is clearly global. All peoples, all places, all times. And it's incumbent upon us to get the gospel to those peoples. How long has it been since Jesus has told us the Great Commission? 2,000 plus years. How many people today have zero access to the gospel? No church. They're not sitting in a grow adult Sunday school class right now. They've never heard of it. They don't know anything about the first coming of Jesus, let alone his soon second coming. There's about 2 billion of those people. North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. It's called the 1040 window, latitude, longitude lines. It's a rectangle. Two billion people who live in that swath of earth today, almost no access to the gospel. Whose job is it to get the gospel to them? Well, we could say we're in partnership with every local church that believes the same gospel we believe, so it's our responsibility. That's true. But earlier when I said it's not on you individually to bear the responsibility, I do believe it's on each local church. So while we can hope and pray that our partnerships with other local churches and ones we've never heard about and will never know about will do their job, we can't defer. That's why every week we pray for little reached, usually not at all reached people in our church service. Because how is the gospel going to get from here to there? Jesus said, pray 
to the Lord of harvest to raise up workers. Every Sunday, we pray for them because we want some of you to be sent by us to go there. That's the point, the scope of the commission. The fruit, what's going to happen when the king's commission uh, is evidently making progress in the world? We're talking about on this side of eternity, Acts 14, 23, this is what will happen. Churches will spring up. They'll appoint elders in every church. Pray for them, fast for them, commend them to the Lord in whom they have believed. So this is a pretty incredible account, Acts 14. Uh, What happened, this is the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, are making their way through the regions closest to Antioch. You can see the concentric circles of Paul's three missionary journeys. This is the Titus. He goes to Pisidian Antioch. He goes to Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium. He stoned so badly for preaching the gospel that the people who threw the rocks at his head thought they killed him. We know that because they grabbed his ankles and drug his seemingly lifeless body outside the city and dumped him on the side of the road. You got to look dead for people to do that to your body. No resistance. By God's grace, Paul's not dead. Somehow the Lord resuscitates, revives him, restores him, enough so that what does he do? He stands up, walks right back into the city, goes to the church and says, who wants to be an elder? And people volunteered. They knew what they were getting themselves into. This is the verse. They appointed elders for them in every church. These people knew it was not playing games, following Jesus. This is life and death. He's worthy. He's coming back soon. Everybody's got to hear. We'll do it. It's here am I, send me. It's Isaiah 6. What's the end? Where is this all going to climax? The affirmation said missions exist because worship doesn't. In the here and now, the Father is seeking. Oh, too good not to have the cursor. There we go. Oh, make it blue. Uh, Maybe you can see it. The Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. What people does he seek? He creates this. He's not looking to find them out there. He's causing this. True worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The gospel's going out. Uh, God told Paul before they believed, don't be too afraid. Bad stuff might happen, but I have a lot of people in this city. That's before they're converted. So when we go out with the gospel, we go out believing God's going to save people. He wouldn't have sent us if he didn't have a divine plan for those who would hear like Lydia by the riverside in Philippi. And it says, as Paul explained these things, God opened her heart to believe. The Father's seeking people to be his worshipers. Um, Romans 15, this is so beautiful. For I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. 
So why did Jesus come? Why did he become a servant of the circumcision? Why did, why did he become incarnate, die, rise again, go to heaven? To confirm all the promises God ever made and, 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 so that the whole world would glorify God. All the Gentiles, from among them, they would glorify God for his mercy. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That's what he's up to. Second Thessalonians says he's coming back for this reason. He will come twofold to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you is believed. Who is this written to? A Gentile church in Thessalonica. He's coming back for you, Thessalonians. I know you're concerned about people who've already died in the faith and what's happening to all of them. That's what First, Second Thessalonians largely about. I'm telling you, he's coming back. And when he comes, all who have believed are going to marvel at him. Missions will be no more. Worship will be the reality. This is, this is what's coming. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have the need of the light of a lamp, the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever and ever. We're going to see his face. This is the great end. We believe this day is coming. Therefore, we go. One last comment. We don't have time today for interactions. I apologize. Um, but one last comment, and then we'll conclude. Um, I forgot it. <laughs> Uh, they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads. I'm sure it was profound. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the king. Ah, I remember. Thank you that Jesus promised a unique expression to his, of his presence to a particular people. I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Not indiscriminate, not everybody the same, but obedient, disciple-making, church-engrafted, gospel-commending, church-establishing, gospel-to-the-nations followers of Jesus. There's something about your wonderful presence with those who are on mission with you that nobody else gets to enjoy. So we pray, Lord, that we would be such people and such a church. While we're at it, please send Matt Nash somewhere and his family to pastor or plant a new church. Get the gospel to more people. Establish more churches. Use us, Lord. I think we have like, I can't remember, something like $100,000 in a church planting fund. So we pray, Lord, that you would use all that money to help get the gospel somewhere. Pray for Corey Henry and Hunter Coy, who today are, if I understand correctly, first Sunday of a new church plant. God caused the gospel to go deep in that community, a lot of people to get saved, and for that church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just help us, Lord, to be about this business. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.